This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. This is not a regular player, this is not a pretty good quarterback. This is an all time great. Is he? A strange bird off the field? He's a little nuts, I think. Okay? That's his deal. Is he really weird? Yeah. You don't have to hang out with him. You just have to put on your Jet jersey, go to the stadium, and watch him do his thing, which is move the Jets down the field and into the end zone, which is something you have not had in years. Subscribe to the Mike Francesa podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Mike Missanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. All right, ladies and gentlemen, on the Mike Missanelli Podcast, it doesn't get any bigger than our next guest. I'm delighted that he's joining us today. He is uh, world famous, and uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say anymore, man. He's, he's on top of the mountain. He might be the, the most famous media personality in, in, in the world right now. He is the great Stephen A. Smith. What's up, my man? My brother, what's going on, man, with your crazy-ass self? How you doing? I'm doing all right. Not as good as you, though, man, because, mm-hmm. like, first of all, let's touch on this. You're in Las Vegas. I want you to tell the people what you're doing in Vegas, to, just to give you people an idea of what your schedule's like. Well, I had to do first take this morning. Uh, obviously, had to do my podcast yesterday, No Mercy with yours truly. Um, I had to uh, do some, uh, you know, book, you know, some promotional stuff for my book, which I've been blessed and fortunate enough has been a bestseller for at least five weeks and the audio books are longer than that. Um, and I'm out here giving a, a, a few speeches. Uh, I did a speech for the Landry Group um, and I, I, the podcast movement convention is out here. And I've got to give a couple of appearances and speeches for here as well. So I'll be out here for the next few days for that. And, and you're also, see, I, I can't keep, first take, podcast, book, um, uh, speaking engagements, motivational speaking, um, movies. Uh, you're, you're, <laughs> the star, you're the star of Creed, right? I'm not the star, trust the star. me. That's Michael B. Jordan, uh, you know, and, and those boys and, and, and John Majors. But I had a little small part in there that I filmed with Michael B. Jordan at our first take studio. So that was re- that was pretty cool. That's one of my boys. It was I, I appreciated him asking me to do that. Yeah, I thought you were actually going to be in one of the fight scenes. Get all, you know, get all buff. Oh no, you know, no, why, why? <laughs> Watch me get knocked out? No, no, thank you. No thanks, Steve. I got to ask you this question because. Uh, I don't know if, if you had any idea how how big, you know, like, when you go back to the origins of, of your career, uh, could you have imagined the success that you are attaining now? I mean, you're, you're just, you're world famous, man. I mean, that's, like, I got a little fame here in Philly, but you're world famous. I don't really think about it, to be quite honest with you, because... You know, I'm on the grind. I'm, you know, my attitude is I got to get up and work every day. If I was an actor, 
you know, a Hollywood actor that was making 20 million a film and I could take off six months to a year or now work two, three years and still know that I've got income coming in. I'd feel a lot better. I'd feel a lot more along the lines of what you're talking about. But when you got to get up every day and be on your grind just to make sure you get those checks, you know, you still have that workman, that working man's mentality. And that's me. Um, when we talk about my popularity, I mean, I'm making a nice salary for ESPN. So I guess that that puts me in that position. There's no doubt about that. I didn't anticipate that I'd be making that kind of money. That's fair. Um, but everything else outside of the salary that I earned for ESPN, everything else I anticipated because everything else that I'm doing requires me to put my head down and get to work. And that's what I've been about my entire career and my entire life. And that's what I still have to do today in order to make the money that I make. Yeah, but see, here's the thing. You you probably could retire tomorrow with the money you're making. But let's that's talk about true. the work ethic. It's not because true. It's, okay. no, no, seriously. <laughs> it, it's, beyond, it's beyond that for you because right. the work ethic is, is really what defines it. You grind every day because that's what's in you. So let's go yeah. back. Like how where where did you get that? Well, it starts with mom. Um, as I detail in my book, um, you know, my mother having six of us, um, having a father that um, didn't live up to his responsibilities as it pertained to taking care of the family, um, therefore, thereby forcing my mother to work two jobs, 16 hours a day, seven days a week, or one week's vacation a year for the better part of 20 to 25 years. When you see um what I consider to be the greatest woman that I've ever known and a woman, you know, who my love for will never be exceeded by anybody to go through those kind of struggles. Um, you know, it's virtually impossible to be lazy. It's virtually impossible to be somebody that's not about the grind. It's not about the work. Uh, because certainly when you watch your own mother put forth that level of commitment and that work ethic, how could you as a grown man, uh, particularly one with your own responsibilities, be anything less. It would be a disservice to her. It would be a disservice to me. And so for me, it started from there, but it also started from the fact that I had to work hard in order to achieve anything because I wasn't the brightest candle on the birthday cake. I got left back twice. I got held back for the fourth grade entirely. Um, uh, later on, would learn that, you know, my condition was called dyslexia, that it was an undiagnosed form of dyslexia that I ultimately was suffering from. So me putting my head down and being on my grind and putting in that work was really my sole opportunity to exceed expectations and to pull myself up from the proverbial gutter uh, that a lot of kids in my situation were exposed to. That's the best answer that I can give you to that question, and I think it's as accurate as I can get to it. Well, it's a great answer, and, and I'm just wondering, with all you do, see, I, I, I love uh, uh, when I, I have idle time. You don't have any idle time, and you just keep going and going and going. And I wonder if you stop and think about, you know, uh, I'd like to have some idle time, but you just keep plugging away. Well, I would tell you it was once that way. It's not that way anymore, Eminem, only from this standpoint. When I get tired now, I feel it more than I did when I was younger. You know, when before when I got tired, I just needed some sleep. It's not to say that that's not the case now, but the difference between before and after is now the headaches are a little bit longer. The stomach ache kicks in. The unwillingness to get in the gym, to get on the Peloton or the treadmill, the lift, to do whatever it is, um, that energy 
that you expend, um, you feel the residual effects of it now more than you did when you were younger. Before you could keep grinding and grinding, push yourself to exhaustion, get a good night's sleep, and you straight. Now you get a good night's sleep and you still wake up a little tired. You still wake up devoid of that energy that you once had. And so because of that, that's when it makes you say, okay, not necessarily that I need to smell the roses, but that grind that I'm on, I need to find a way to just step back a touch, still do the work effectively, still be on my grind, but pick your spots from time to time, manage your life a little bit better than you once did if you want to stick around to truly, truly enjoy the fruits of your labor as you get older. I do appreciate the importance of that now more than I did when I was younger. So you you do appreciate idle time at this point because I don't see where you get. I wouldn't say I, I I wouldn't say idle time, but what I would say is the time to do what I want to do. You know, it, it's really not so much about the work; it's feeling you have to. Like you know, it's like I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. That gets old now quicker. Now, if I gotta do an abundance of things, that's all right. But do I have to do it at 4 o'clock? Can I wait till 6? Do I have to do it at 6? Can I wait till 8? Do I have to do it today? Can I wait till tomorrow morning? Now you find yourself asking those questions more than you did when you were younger. When you were younger and you were on your grind, you did what you needed to do, get it done, and that's it. Now it's like, damn, these guys at the Super Bowl, I wish I didn't have to do NBA countdown. These guys are at the fight. I wish I didn't have to be in studio for first take the next morning. These guys are at this event. Damn, I wish I could have been there, but I had to be here. Now it's like, damn that. I want to be at these places. I want to do whatever it is that I want to do. Because Floyd Money Mayweather said this on an Instagram post a few months ago. I saw it and I know him, but he had never said this to me like he had said it on an Instagram post. And I remember calling him because I was so I, I, I was so appreciative of what he said, but so jealous of the fact that I had missed it earlier when I knew him from years ago. He said, true freedom is being able to get up when you want and go to sleep when you want. And that really is true. Think about that for a second. We can talk about assignments. We can talk about jobs. We can talk about obligations. We can talk about all of these things. But if we could get up when we wanted to and go to sleep when we wanted to every day, Think about the freedom that that would give us and the stress that that would prevent us from accumulating. If you could get up when you wanted to get up and go to sleep when you want to go to sleep. I just looked at him and I said, damn, I didn't actually didn't even call him. I FaceTimed him just to look at him and say, damn, that's true. I'm older than you, but I never thought about it that way. He goes to sleep when he wants and he wakes up when he wants. And without the money, that in and of itself would save you an abundance of stress that you ultimately communicate. Uh, well, that's, that's what, see, that, that's what I do now. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'm doing now. And I, and I, hey, man, which, is why, which is why you look a little bit happier. <laughs> you know, you look a little bit happier than I'm accustomed to seeing you look. That might be the reason why. Steve, let me ask you this, because there's a mystique about you. Like, I've known you for a long time, and I was fortunate enough to work with you side by side for a couple of years on the show, which I had yes. a lot of fun doing uh but there's this mystique about you people that always like know that we're close what's he like what's he like and 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 that's the question that most people get about you what are you like how how would you describe how would you tell people that who who is Stephen a smith this is perhaps the cockiest thing that i'll ever say about myself 
I'm a good dude. I truly, truly don't mean harm against anybody. I'm not somebody that wants to succeed, but I want it to be at your expense. I want you to succeed too. I don't want to be at the top by myself. I don't want to look at people and see them at the bottom. I don't want people unemployed. I don't want people struggling. I don't want, I, I don't want that. that. That's why I'm so big on compassion. I'm so big on, look, own up to your mistakes when you make them and let's move forward as opposed to living in this cancer culture world that we living in where people want you to lose your job and you want to be fired. I'm a black man that understands that racism and prejudice exists, but I'm on, I'm talking to one of my boys who's as white as they come. And I'm cool with him. You see what I'm saying? Because I know that Mike Missinelli's a good dude. You know, you can't come to me and tell me that Mike Missinelli has a position and he differs from me. So guess what? He's not my brother. He ain't real. He's not, he's not for us. He's not down for us. You can't come to me with that BS. I don't want to hear that. You can't come to me if Mike Missinelli makes a mistake and you want me to, you want me to ignore years of friendship and you want to fight. Did he apologize? Did he acknowledge that he made a mistake? Don't you make mistakes? Can't we move on from that? I'm that guy. I'm that guy. I don't give a damn who you are. I don't give a damn what the color of your skin is. I don't give a damn what your ethnicity is or whatever. Fairness and compassion comes first with me always. And a, and, and a, and a desire to see other people happy just as much as I want myself happy. And I think that that's the kind of person that I am at my core. I'm a work hard. I'm a grind. I'm unapologetically black. I love my community. I love my people with and without our flaws. I love all of these things. I'm going to be black first, foremost, and always. But that don't mean I'm anti anybody. And that's what I want people to really, if they really, really want to know something about me, that's me. Uh, by the way, I don't know if I've ever made a mistake. So uh, you're like, there's, there's, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know this much. I've never heard you admit you made one. I know that much. <laughs> All right. So here's the thing about it, because you have an amazing ability to have things roll off your back. You do step into the hot water pail every now and then. And I, and I don't even know if you, you think you, at the time you're doing, you are stepping into the hot water pail, but so, so how do you like in that hot seat every day, because uh, a lot of people would, would be stressed by that, but you don't seem to be stressed by taking a risk to put your foot in a hot water bottle. Well, I'm I'm passionate. I mean what I say and I say what I mean, but I'm telling you what I feel, not that I'm right. And there's a difference. So if I talk, if I say something, but you come to me with facts that show I might be a bit ill-informed, I got to own that. And it's okay because my attitude is, especially when I'm debating, I'm usually winning, okay? 95% of the time I'm winning, okay? That rare occasion that could probably amounts to about 5% of the time, I'm learning from somebody who's more knowledgeable than me and has taken the time to educate me about something I needed to be educated about, which means I walked away smarter, which means I didn't lose that either. And so my attitude is, is that I'm never losing when I do what I do because I'm either disseminating intel, information, and perspectives to the masses that they can appreciate, or I'm learning from somebody who's even more educated than I am, and I'm good with it. And it's absolutely fine. As long as you're not closed-minded, you're not prejudiced, 
you're not vile or malicious in your intent and you do it for the betterment uh, of the uh, of the good for everybody i'm good with it outside of that let's have some fun agreeing to disagree talking basketball football baseball social justice issues politics the list goes on and on it doesn't matter because at the end of the day if my heart's in the right place and i'm talking to people who have a good heart then we all benefit from it and that's how I look at it. Let's, let's talk about a couple of things that, uh, uh, recently. The, the, uh, the comments you made about the NHL caused a lot of fury with hockey people. Yep. And then before, before that, uh, and I happen to be watching this, uh, it, Jay Williams is on the set, and, and he came at you, I thought, in a very unfair way about Kyrie Irving, and you were giving him legitimate criticism, and he accused you of, of – being a hater of Kyrie Irving and, and being unfair with Kyrie Irving, like you had some personal grudge against him. So how, how did you handle both those situations? Well, 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 a couple of things. Let's go to the hockey first. First of all, I told the truth. The only damn thing I know about hockey is that the puck is black. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. Now, 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 now here's the other truth to that. I actually happen to have a great relationship with Gary Bettman. And I promised him I would edify and elevate my, my, my knowledge about hockey, and I'll even attend a hockey game with him. And I'm going to keep that promise. Now, I'm two and a half years old because I promised him two and a half years ago I would do this. So I owe the man to go to a hockey game with him. But I'm very fond of him. I'm very fond of hockey fans. I'm very fond of all of that. I just don't know the sport because I didn't grow up knowing anything about it. And in my professional career, I was never asked to cover it, but two times in my entire career when I was writing for the Philadelphia Inquirer. I don't know the sport, but I certainly don't mean to imply that it's not a real sport, that it's not a sport that people shouldn't love and support and anything. Now that I did not mean to imply in any way, but that the, that all I know about hockey is that the puck is black. You damn right. It's the entire <laughs> truth. It's totally true. Okay. So let's get that out the way. Now in the case of Jay Williams, I was genuinely pissed off. Um, Jay Williams is a friend and a colleague and somebody that I'm pretty close to. On this particular morning, I didn't know who the hell he was. I don't know what the hell happened to him that he would come at me in such a personal manner just because I was giving constructive criticism with Kyrie. Now, Kyrie and I have our differences on a personal level which is none of anybody's business, and I'll never tell why. He knows why, okay? And his daddy knows why. They know how I feel about how they've acted towards me, and they know how I feel about them, and I know how they feel about me. But I can say that to Mike Messinelli and anybody out there because I know that that does not interfere with my reporting on him and my perspective based off of the facts. See, this is where people get themselves in trouble. You might have a personal difference with somebody. You keep that information from everybody and then go out there and talk about the person like you're objective about them when you can't stand their ass. Okay? That's a problem. I have the ability to say, Kyrie, I can't stand your ass. <laughs> and still, it's not going to stop me from being objective. It's not going to blind me to the greatness that you display on the basketball court the unfairness that the NBA or anybody else put in your direction when you got into trouble because you retweeted the, the movie 
on your Twitter page and they're asking for these stipulations for you to meet in order to come back. I'm able to separate that by coming to your defense while still acknowledging to your face, if you were in my face, I don't like your ass that much. I'm capable of doing that, okay? Because my career, spanning close to 30 years now, has proven. Look, there's times that I've been critical of folks, and as a result, they got in my face. They, we had disagreements, and you could, you could say that we had personal animus towards one another. It still doesn't stop me from going out there when you perform and say, that's a hell of a performance. You're a hell of a performer. You did this. You deserve that because of your performance. I'm able to compartmentalize that from whatever personal friction we may have cultivated with one another. How, how does it feel when players come at you? It depends on what for. A lot, of, a lot of players come at you. Let's face it. It, de- it, depends, it depends on what for. It depends on what for. If you come at me because you think I've gotten personal, I'm all ears because I don't want to do that. I want to make sure that I'm a professional at all times and that if you're saying that you think I've been personal about something, I'm going to listen to what you have to say. And if you have an argument and I've said something publicly about you that you found personally offensive, I'm not going to apologize privately. I'm going to go right back to that public forum where I insulted you and I'm going to apologize publicly because that's the manly thing to do. And I'm a man and I'm going to do that. If you're wrong, you're wrong. And I'm going to tell you you're wrong. And I'm going to stand pat on my position. And I've done that on many occasions. And a lot of times that I've had friction with players, the minute we've had a conversation, it's been instantly resolved. It's been instantly resolved because that was what it was. In the case of Kyrie Irving, it's a little bit different because his father got involved and got a bit personal. Now, that's not for y'all to know why, but he got a bit personal. And so as a result of that, it's you and your dad. Okay, that's, not, that's how it is. We understand each other. Fine. You, you where you are, I'm where I'm at. And as, 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 a, as an aside to you, um, again, I can't give you any details, but it also involved your friend and mine, Gary D. Howard. Oh, really? <laughs> that's right. Because Gary D. Howard grew up with his father. You see what I'm saying? So that's that's how far. Yeah, first tell people Ga- Gary Howard is, is a great journalist. He was one one of the editors that uh, we, we both had at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Great man, I love him. Death. Former deputy sports yeah. editor, former deputy sports editor for the Philadelphia Inquirer, former executive sports editor for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I only bring him up to say his relationship with Kyrie Irving's father goes back decades. So when Kyrie Irving's father had an issue with me, he went to Gary. <laughs> so in other words, I'm just telling you, I'm just giving you insight to point out that it doesn't stop me from being professional. But his angst towards me was based off of what I was doing professionally. And it pissed me off. And that's the part that makes it personal. The fact that it pissed me off. But it didn't stop me from being professional. So it doesn't stop you from, from lauding Kyrie Irving if, if he needs to be lauded. At all. Okay. At all. All right. Let, At, let's, all. Uh, At all. Uh, let's bring up uh, John Morant because I heard you, you talk about uh, and you related to you covering uh, Allen Iverson and, and the whole thing, the whole dynamic uh, of the, the friendship that they have and, and uh, the fact that they, they now 
are, are involved with a, a group of friends that could get him into trouble. So your position on, on, on Ja, just tell the people what your position is on him right now. First of all, I don't know if Allen Iverson and John Morant are friends. I never asked that. What I was advising John Morant was to talk to Allen Iverson because of the company he keeps and the kind of lifestyle he lives. So I was saying if anybody is an expert on the pitfalls and the minefields that lie in wait, it would be Allen Iverson. And that's the advice that I was giving to the 23-year-old John Morant, who basically got himself in trouble because he was caught on video um, five in the morning, you know, waving a gun and stuff like that while he was in Denver. And so you've got the Denver police investigating whether a crime took place. You got him issuing a mea culpa about he takes full responsibility and he's ashamed and sorry for the embarrassment he brought to himself, his family, the organization of the Memphis Grizzlies, the NBA, the, the city of Memphis community, blah, 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 blah. At the end of the day, here's the bottom line. John Morant lives a fast lifestyle in some people's eyes. And that sometimes entails hanging with the wrong crowd. And what I was saying is that as a black man, we're from the streets and let's understand something. It's real hard to separate yourself from folks. And that's understood. It's hard for me to do that. And I'm in my fifties. Okay. But it is important to recognize that the folks that are around you need to understand who you are, that you're the asset that they're supposed to protect even if that means protecting you from yourself. They can't just be people around you who capitulate to your wishes and your whims and tell you everything that you want to hear and never do anything to insulate you from things that can become trouble for you and compromise everything that you're trying to accomplish. And John Morant needed to hear that message, but he wasn't the only one. His boys needed to hear that message. Remember, they're in Indianapolis weeks ago. And Indiana Pacers players and staff talking about some lead, some red laser was pointing at them, um, indicating that there was some kind of weapon that was coming from a car or a ride that John Morant was in. And so when you have stuff like that going on, in the end, his name has become synonymous with police. Police investigating this, police investigating that. You got into trouble. He was getting ready to beat up some 17-year-old and you brandished a weapon against him, allegedly, and all of this other stuff. Instead of talking about you being the superstar player that you are, destined to lead the Memphis Grizzlies to a championship, instead we're talking about you and law enforcement and transgressions. That spells trouble. And he needed to hear Yo, you got to guard yourself against all of that. Then we hear Taylor Jenkins of the Memphis Grizzlies, the head coach, coming out and saying that John Moran is getting himself some help. Well, whoa, now we got a bigger problem because all we saw was the brandishing of the gun. What are you talking about help? Help for what? We don't know. But it begs those questions. You've been on radio for years. You've been a journalist for years. Nobody is as, 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 as inquisitive and nosy as your ass, Michael Missinelli. So there's no way that you wouldn't have asked that question. What do you mean he's getting the help that he needs? What help? How we go from waving a gun to saying he need help? Help with what? Drugs? Alcohol? What? You got these questions that are now being asked. 
And that's the situation involving John Moran, as we as presently stated. What do you think the league does here? Well, I don't think they're doing much right now because he's already out. Supposedly, it was going to be just two games. Now we're hearing a minimum of a couple of weeks. We don't know. So if indeed he's getting help and it's several weeks that he's out, then the likelihood is the league will move on from this because bringing more attention to this is only going to compromise potentially their bottom line, and they're not going to want that if they can avoid it. Go back to the Iverson thing. You covered the Iverson era for, what, 10 years? Yes. All right, so 10, 10 years. What was that like to cover that whole dynamic as a journalist? Oh, it was a nightmare. It, 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 was, it was both a nightmare and arguably the most rewarding time of my, my career. I wouldn't be where I am today if it was not for covering Allen Iverson because by covering him, it's what elevated my name in the mind's eye of the basketball public. If I was covering Sharif Abdurrahim or or or, or a Mookie Blaylock back in the day or somebody like that, what would have mattered? Anything that I wrote wasn't going to necessarily resonate that much because of the subject matter that I was talking about. But the fact that everybody in the world, you got to remember, you know this because you was doing radio in, in, in Philadelphia, at WIP. And you remember outside of Michael Jordan, Allen Iverson was the biggest star in the NBA. He was bigger than Shaq. He was bigger than Kobe. He was bigger than anybody at one point. You know, not that he was ever perceived as being better than them, but I'm talking about star power. Box office appeal. There was Jordan, and then there was Iverson. And I was writing articles every day about Allen Iverson. So because of that, everybody knew who I was because they were looking for Stephen A. Smith's content about Allen Iverson. And so in that regard, it was incredibly rewarding, and I benefited from that exponentially, which is a big reason why Allen Iverson and I are brothers and we're friends to this very day who speak at least twice to three times a month. But the flip side to it is that it was nightmarish. Um, the casinos, uh, the hangouts at Fridays, um, you know, the incidences at home, you know, his boys and everybody else. I mean, there was no rest because Alan Iverson, there's a running joke. There was a stretch where for five consecutive years, Alan Iverson ruined my vacation. Every I got to a point where I got mad at him because every time he got in something, I was on vacation. It was like he timed it for me to be in the island somewhere to make news. And I literally used to go off on him. I, I, I remember one time I went off on him. I said, man, you make me sick. You make me so fucking sick. I'm so sick of your ass. And he was he like, what? I said, couldn't this have waited a week? Yeah, did you have to do it this week? It's like you wait for me to go to the islands, and he start laughing. Get over that shit. That's how it goes. You're trying to be big time, right? You're trying to be big time, right? That's how it goes. And he would say stuff like that to me, and we, you know, we'd laugh it off or whatever. But he would drive me nuts. I would go away to the islands, and I literally would be praying, please don't do anything until I get back. And sure enough, he would get into some stuff. Each and every single time I was on vacation for like five straight years. It, it, it is totally true. 
Tell the truth. You had to be like on on, on guard all the time. Oh, it's interesting because because you 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 knew all all this stuff. You, you, and you, where did you draw the line with what you knew and what, like? It, it, I, that's what you're talking about with the nightmare. It was so much involved, and you was, knew all of it. It was so like, where did you draw a line? Personal, it's the same way I draw the line with everybody else. It's personal, bro. What goes on with you and your wife? What goes on? Not certainly not talking about Iverson, but I'm just saying anybody. Your wife, your spouse, your significant other, your family members, that's your personal business, man. I mean, if you stay, if you're not in the police blotters, it's not public information. You're not spreading it on, you know, on the media somewhere in today's day and age, social media. But back then, the media it's none of my business. Um, If it had a direct impact on basketball um, and it was publicized, then it was my business. Uh, but Allen Iverson, all the players, all the coaches, all the executives, they always knew that about me. Um, if if it's involving your personal life, I got nothing to say. I got nothing to say. And you were right. I did know. I knew about the casinos. I knew about, you know, the drinking at one time. I knew about I knew about a lot of things. But you had to stay on top of all that stuff. I, mean, I know you did. You know, yeah. a, but 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 how I would do it, how I would always do it was. The play, you know, not him again, not him, because Allen Iverson was a rare, it was a rarity. Allen Iverson, and I'll tell you a quick story about him to buffer my point. But you know, with a lot of people, you sit up there and you, you know you got to draw the line in the sand. And I'm gonna let them know your performance is my domain. Now, I would say something along the lines like, "This dude, I wonder what the hell he was doing last night, the way he looked," and that was my indication to let them know. I do know what you were doing last night. And so players would read it and they'd see that line and they go like this. All right. All right, man. I, I got it. I got it. And I'm like, uh-huh. I know your ass was here. Like, you know, plenty of players, you know, you, you know, you hopped out of town and then flew back in at the last minute and stuff like that. And they'd be looking at me like, how the hell this dude knows this stuff or whatever. And I would drop little nuggets of one line and articles here or there just to let them know. Don't think I don't know. I do know. But I'm gonna let it slide, you know. But you would never report he was in another town last night. And he got in late. Well, in, in Allen Iverson's case, that was never the case. He didn't have to. I okay. mean, the party came to him on City Avenue. <laughs> it came to him. He didn't have to leave town. But 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 with other players throughout the league, yeah, they would always get themselves in something. But this was the time when the biggest justification that I could ever bring up to, to, to justify my approach was this story with Allen Iverson that I'm about to tell you. So Allen Iverson is struggling. I mean, he is struggling bad. I mean, his shoot percentage is awful. He's playing like garbage the whole bit. And what no one knew at the time was that his lovely wife, Tawana, was, you know, she she, she, she got they got five kids together. She complained that she wants her husband home more. She wants him home. And so Allen Iverson had made this commitment. And maybe he'll tell y'all the story. I wouldn't tell it to you unless he was okay with it. He made this commitment. I'm going to be home. So this dude was going to practice. He was going to games. And he was taking his butt straight home. You know, he was was being a goody two-shoes. And he was awful. He couldn't hit anything. He couldn't do anything right. Like a 10-game stress. Like, my God, who is this player? He can't hit anything. And, and he just lost it one day and just said, I've had enough. <laughs> and he stayed out. It had to be till like four or five in the morning or whatever. <laughs> and he came out there and he dropped 58. 
against Stevie Francis and Catino Mobley and them in Houston. It was unbelievable. I mean, he just went ballistic. I think that was the game he dropped 58, but he just went ballistic. But he said, I'm, hell with this curfew. Hell with going home. Hell with doing things. I can't take it no more. And he went out there and he bust their ass. And, and I looked and, and he knew I was somebody that knew, you know, I had an idea, not every little detail, but I had an idea how a lady was out. And he just looked at me and he nodded. And I was like, I got nothing to say. Cause Larry Brown, cause Larry Brown would be like, you know, you gotta be a professional. You gotta do things the right way. You got to, and I'm like, coach, I can never support you again. Not when it comes to him. I said, this dude will, this dude will sit up there, stay out till four or five in the morning, eat Snickers for dinner, you know, uh, you know, uh, grab a brew or something <laughs> and go out there and drop 50, putting the right things in his body, getting the proper amount of sleep, going home early, not doing anything. He played like garbage. I can't go with you anymore, coach. I got to go with him. I got to go with him. It works for him. It works. For That's him. hysterical. Uh, let me quickly, like, what, what was it like? Uh, you, you obviously you're on a national scene now, and you're a New York guy, but covered Philly for a, for a lot of years. I mean, you're like a prodigal son of Philly. What what is is Philly nuts as people think? I love Philly, man. Um, and I'm the guy that got booed the night Allen Iverson's jersey got retired and hung to the rafters. They booed me when he thanked me, you know, but. It, it doesn't matter to me. Boos and cheers, they're all the same to me. As long as you're reading, listening, and watching, I could care less. Um, but I got to tell you, it, secretly, you know, people don't realize this because I'm a native New Yorker, but Philly is my second home. You know, um, uh, I, I'm so appreciative of everything that city has done for me. I love the fans. I love the fan base. I love their knowledge. I love their passion and their fervor. You got to remember, because I travel, I've traveled so much throughout my career. I know what these other cities are compared to Philly. And I know that Philly is one of the best sports towns in America, without question. And so just as grateful as I am to Allen Iverson and the Sixers for what they've done for my career, I'm equally as grateful to the fans in Philadelphia. I always love the city. I always big up the city of Philadelphia. And I'll never, ever let anybody denigrate Philadelphia as a sports town. I will never let that happen. Uh, I'd like to hear that. All right, you work with a couple guys. I just want to bring up a couple guys. I think the show is great. First take is a great show. I, I like the, the format now. You work with, with Max and you, you work with Bayless. I got to ask you this about Bayless. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, is he mentally ill? <laughs> Seriously. I got, I just have to ask the question. I, he, like every Something comes out every week where I go, he's not, like not real. He's different, man. <laughs> he's, he's definitely different. I'll say that. Um, what I will tell you is this. Skip is a genuine, authentic, professional contrarian he firmly believes in thinking that he thinks differently than anyone else on the planet he is diametrically opposed to flowing with conventional wisdom he does not believe in it he believes that there are things that he sees that no one either sees or don't have the courage to verbalize like he does. That's how he thinks. And so for people who think he makes stuff up, not at all. He believes it, man. 
And, and I've told this story many times, and I'm not betraying my friendship with him by bringing up the story. You know, he sat up there, and the executives at one time at ESPN were, you know, they weren't high on the whole Tebow thing. He was very, very committed to his beliefs about Tebow being a better clutch quarterback than Aaron Rodgers at the time and all of that other stuff because he just finds a way to win. He can run, doesn't need to throw. He can run with the football, blah, 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 blah. But I remember, I remember one time, and I've told this story a thousand times. The first time, Skip, one of the first times, Skip and I used to be on SportsCenter on Sunday mornings doing something called Old School, New School. It was hosted by the late, uh, you know, by the great uh, former SportsCenter host, Bob Lee, who's still alive, does work at Seton Hall University. Great guy. And Bob Lee, former uh, host of Outside the Lines, by the way. So he was doing this, right? It was old school, new school. And Skip uttered out of his mouth, all professional athletes should have an 11 p.m. curfew. They should not be allowed outside after 11 o'clock, even during off seasons. He said, nothing good comes from you being out late at night. And I screamed on the air laughing. How old are you, Skip? How old are you, right? And so we, we're in separate studios, but in the same building, Eminem. And we leave our, set, our sets and we come out. And I go to him and I go like this. Yo, man, I got to give it to you. I never thought you would say something like that. That was really funny, man. That was really funny. That was good. This is good television. He looks around and comes up to my face. He says, you're laughing, but I'm dead serious. There's <laughs> nothing good that comes from an athlete being out after 11 o'clock at night. All professional athletes should have an 11 p.m. curfew. And that is when I knew that if we ever did a debate show together, we would work. Because I said, we'll never agree. Never. <laughs> he is just off his, he is off his rocker. He's off his rocker, and I am not. Yeah, he, he believes everything he says, which make, convinces me even more that he's mentally ill. So, uh, so let me just, quick, a quick thing. I know you, uh, you're boys with Chris Rock. You're in the movie with him. Yeah. Uh, I think I love my wife. And so what did, how did you think he handled the Will Smith thing the other night? I thought he was exceptional. Um, I thought he showed his comedic brilliance um, throughout the show leading up to the diatribe against Will Smith. When he just, he said a lot of funny things. He talked about our addictions, our addictions to excellence, our addiction, you know, addiction to attention. And he talked about the four pillars of it, the addiction, you know, to, 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 to being a victim and all of this other stuff. I thought, you know, from a societal perspective, we needed to hear those things. Um, I thought he talked about, you know, just selective. I forgot the word that he used, but selective something. And he was talking about, you know, the kind of people that will play Michael Jackson records but not R. Kelly. You know what I'm saying? I thought that was brilliant. He said, when did Snoop Dogg become Morgan Freeman? I thought that was hilarious. You know, all of this other stuff, it was funny. But the stuff with Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith, although it garnered laughter, he wasn't playing. And it wasn't him joking. He was dead serious. He was so serious, he messed up his own damn joke because he wasn't really telling jokes at that particular moment in time. I know him. I know how hurt he was that Will Smith did what he did to him. Um, he refuses to be a victim. He was absolutely right. You ain't going to see him crying on Oprah somewhere else or anything like that. Um, but he handled it a hell of a lot better than most of us. Um, Will Smith had done that to me. 
I would have reacted the same way on camera. Second, we went to commercial. It had been police involved. Listen, somebody, we don't have to separate us. There's no way you're getting out of there without a confrontation. Yeah. You don't do that. You don't do that. I think I, I say the same speaking to you and any other man that I know. You're not getting away with that. Okay. And I think that, you know, what it was done, and, and for me personally, it resonated uh, to a different level as well because that's a black man you slapped in front of a global audience. And it was the first black production for the Oscars ever by the great Will Packer. And people, you know, to me, the damage that he did because you couldn't control yourself and you had a meltdown in all likelihood because you were emasculated by somebody that was not Chris Rock, Stephen A., Mike Missanelli, or anybody else. We all know who that person was. And you, you, you took it out on a dude that was about 60 pounds lighter than you. And you can talk about the potential of a history there between them that we don't know about or whatever the case may be. But on my podcast, No Mercy, I mentioned this. Would you have done that to Phil Smith? I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Would you have done that to uh, Jamie Foxx? Would you have done that to 50 Cent? Would you have done that to, to Eddie Murphy? Would you have done that to The Rock? Would you have done that uh, to, 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 to Michael J. White? Would you have done that to an abundance of people? You knew who you were doing it to. And it was the personification of bullying. And it was really, really unfortunate. I thought Chris Rock handled it as exemplary as he possibly could. Obviously, he's going to get paid handsomely for it by Netflix. He deserves every penny. And for those that would bring that up, I will remind you, he never had. He would have never had to work again had he sued Will Smith. He could have sued Will. Jim Carrey, remember Jim Carrey, the comedian, came out and said he would have sued Will Smith for $200 million. Mm -hmm. And by the way, he could have had Will Smith arrested that night where he wouldn't have been allowed to accept his Oscar. He could have done that too. So he could have had him arrested and he could have collected significant dough and he did neither. So to me, since he was the one who was slapped, he handled it the best way he wanted to handle it. And that was without Will Smith getting arrested and without Will Smith being sued. I think Will Smith should be thankful that Chris Rock chose to handle it the way that he did. And that goes for Jada Pinkett Smith too. Uh, Steve, this has been a pleasure. I just want to tell Darren, my producer, one story because when I'm working with Steve and, I, I'm, uh, and we're going to the booth in New York, uh, all of a sudden, um, it's a lovely lady named Sumatra comes in, and, and, oh, and Sumatra's got his his food and his suits. Like I go, on, and it's like, it's his personal assistant. I go, what he goes, he goes, yeah, I got, yeah, I, she's on my payroll. But and I go at that point, I go, man, this 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 MF is big time. He's on top of the world. <laughs> I, I, I didn't have no personal. Assistant. See, Sumatra was lovely. She's still around, Steve. Um, actually, this is what's gonna make you laugh. She actually set up this Zoom meeting before she left my room. She's the best. That's his personal assistant. Tell her I said hello, man. She set up everything before uh, before uh, I hopped on. Uh, she's the best. No question about it. Yeah, it's Sumatra. Is he coming in with his lunch and his food and his and his, and his, and his dry cleaning and the whole thing? <laughs> that, that's right. She still she still <laughs> she does. She does everything for me. She's my right hand. I I, I couldn't make it. I couldn't make it without. She's her. awesome. Do me one. Do me one favor. What uh, the, your favorite? My favorite commercial with you was the Alberto beef jerky. I think I mentioned uh, this before. What was the What was the tag? 
What was the tagline in that commercial? It's been a long time ago. Could you remind a brother? I mean, it's been a while since. Alberto Beef Jerky. You said so. I forget what the tagline Yeah, put out what you bring in. But but believe it or not, you know what my all-time favorite commercial that I did? I loved it when I was I was all nine characters on Star Trek. <laughs> really? All nine characters. That's my all-time favorite commercial. I mean, they put me in these Star Trek costumes. And when I when I I, I, I was imitating Captain Kirk, I was screaming for Spock, you know, I, I was Scotty, you know, I, I I was I was the lieutenant and the the, the the woman, and I just covered my mouth. I was like, oh. you know what I'm it's hilarious, man. I, I loved it. That that's my all time, that's my all time oh, uh, uh, favorite commercial. But believe it or not, yeah, I have fun and I just did all of that stuff for fun, but I'm about to take acting a little bit more seriously. I'm about to take some acting lessons and go to some acting. See, that's what I thought was next. It, the movie roles are next for you. I, I know. It's, I knew. I think. I think. I think. I think. I never thought about it, but I get so many opportunities coming my way. I feel like, yeah, I, I got to do this. I got. I got. Yo, man, do can this. I be? Can I be your? Uh, can I be your male personal assistant? No. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm no. gonna. No, no. <laughs> I only need one. I got a lot of time these days. I only need one assistant. I got it. You know, Samantha. And then Samantha loves you. She'll turn against you. You try to take. You try to take some of her job responsibility. She's the best. She's very territorial. She's very territorial with her job. And listen, man. Uh, best, best, my all my best to you. The book is called Straight Shooter: Memoir of Second Chances and First Takes. I highly recommend it. Uh, uh, all the best, my brother. I appreciate you hanging with me. Appreciate you, my man. You know I love you. I'll talk to you later, man. Take care. All right, Steve. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Mike Bissonelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.